we have uh, Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy, not always together, but on the same basic trip. Um, they've been a lot of places. Uh, they went back through and kind of confirmed and strengthened the churches of Galatia, like Iconium, Derby, Lystra, that area. Then, the Lord wouldn't let them preach in some places where they want to, and they shot straight across to Troas and saw the vision of the map of Macedonia. Went on over into Macedonia, went to Philippi, and found a, a group of ladies meeting by the riverside for prayer, converted Lydia and her household, and, and uh, then ended up uh, converting the jailer, uh, where they were fastened in the inner prison, and the earthquake released them in his household. Then they went on to Thessalonica and stirred up some trouble there, as well as leaving behind some brethren, and went on to Berea, and more or less the same thing. The uh, Jews from Thessalonica pursued him down to Berea to run him out of town there, and Paul gets down to Athens, and they don't have persecution as far as we know in Athens, but the Athenians are not as serious about thinking about what this means in their lives. They're more philosophical, more interested in hearing newfangled ideas and so it doesn't seem like there was as much um, success uh, in terms of people turning to the Lord or as much opposition and after all that Paul leaves Athens and he comes to Corinth and on the second journey Corinth was the place as far as we can tell where he spent the most time Uh, and Corinth was a really pretty important city now he's down in the lower part of Greece now which was known as Achaia and Corinth was on a narrow, I think they call it an isthmus, kind of a, a strip of land between two bodies of water. And it made them uh, sort of be in a center of commerce because people would dock on one side and people take the load across to the other side, and that way they didn't have to go all the way around uh, through the Mediterranean Sea. And so Corinth was kind of a cosmopolitan center and really wild. You know, it was kind of the Las Vegas of its time. Uh, And you would not necessarily think that this would be a very conducive place for the gospel. You know, a city like Corinth. In fact, the the ancients had a term, uh, if we translate it in English, it would be like to Corinthianize somebody. And that was like to make them, you know, immoral. Uh, So that was a pretty, pretty wild place. But the gospel can thrive where there's darkness. In fact, sometimes light shines brighter in the darkness. We sometimes think, well, don't try to teach so-and-so. They wouldn't be interested. Well, you know, maybe they're the ones who really need it, and maybe they're the ones who know they need it. Uh, So, um, any comments or questions before we actually look at the text here? How about uh, 1 to 11? Chapter yes. Okay. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had re- recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tra- they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon you 
be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Alright, so when it comes to Corinth, who does he find to join up with? Paul and Priscilla. Alright, what do you know from this text about Aquila and Priscilla? What's their trajectory? They were Jews. From? Yeah, Aquila was a Jew from Pontus. Where had they most recently been? They'd been in Rome, and why did they end up in Corinth from Rome? Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, isn't that interesting? What if Claudius hadn't done that? Maybe Paul would have never met up with Aquila and Priscilla? Think about all the good Aquila and Priscilla did. Even right here, evidently, Paul's able to get room and board with them. I don't know whether that was free or he had to pay something. Able to work together with them. What was their profession? Makers. Yeah, which uh, is more or less saying leather workers from what I understand. That's what they'd make the tents out of and probably not necessarily only tents that they would have made. But uh, they were leather workers. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether Aquila and Priscilla were already disciples or not when Paul met them. It's possible because we certainly know that not much after that there were disciples in Rome. So there probably was at the time that they were expelled from Rome. Um, or I don't know if it's possible Paul met up with them because they were fellow Jews, fellow profession, and he taught them. But they, it turned out to be just a really good thing. Um, because, you know, all right, Aquila was from Pontus. Then he was in Rome. That's when he got expelled and went to Corinth. Now do you know where else... Aquila and Priscilla ended up. Where did they go from Corinth? To Ephesus. And what special thing did they do in Ephesus that we, we really know about? Taught Apollos. And then where did they go? Now we know there may have been intervening places. Boys, boys, the next place we know about them being. Prisca and what's a different name? Yeah. At the end of the one of the letters. <laughs> okay. Um, they are in um, Rome in Romans sixteen three and four. And I'm just thinking about another reference to them, uh, perhaps. No, I guess not. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's see. All right, this is when they were in Ephesus. They were in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, when Paul wrote to Corinth and sent greetings from Aquila and Priscilla. But by the time he wrote Rome, they're back in Rome again. 
in Romans 16.3. And the last time we read about them, they were in Ephesus in 2 Timothy, am I right? Chapter 4 and verse 19. So they got around. And almost always the church is meeting in their home or they're doing some, you know, really encouraging thing in the gospel. So God used the designs of the world emperor to provide for his children, namely Paul, and to advance the kingdom of God, which is a really interesting thing. Um, so Paul is actually working then at his trade during the week, and when's he preaching? When he's not working. Yeah, when he's not working, he particularly says in verse 4, every Sabbath he went to the synagogue and tried to persuade uh, Jews and Greeks. And so, you know, Paul was not too good to get his hands dirty and work and provide for himself. You know, he's the Apostle Paul, for crying out loud. If anybody, you know, ought to be able to avoid working, you'd think it'd be him, but he worked. Now, not always. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Now, your translations may be different on that. There's some ambiguity in how to translate this. The New American Standard is, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying with Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, wonder why, when Silas and Timothy came down, Paul would be able to devote himself completely to the gospel. Where would they have gotten the money? Philippi, for example. We know that when he departed from Macedonia, no church helped him except Philippi. That was in the initial time. That may have been here. Later, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 11, while he was at Corinth, he took wages of other churches. So evidently there were other congregations that at some point in time sent money to him as well. Um, Silas and Timothy have both been up in Macedonia, where Philippi was. Uh, we know Timothy probably been in Thessalonica, but perhaps Silas was in Philippi. My guess is they brought some money to him. Uh, from churches, the gifts was where he could quit working and be able to support uh, to work full time in the gospel and that's of course what he would do um, well what happens what kind of reaction does this eventually get resisted yeah so you know like a lot of other places there are a lot of people who don't appreciate it what does Paul do? He's teaching the Jews and say he's going to the Gentiles. Yeah, he shakes out his garment. You know, get all the Jewish cooties off. And, uh, you know, kind of that idea. You know, he doesn't want to need any of their unbelieving germs contaminating him. <laughs> Was it, isn't that similar to what Jesus had his disciples do when they weren't received? Shake the dust off their feet, yeah. I think exactly the same kind of figure. It's sort of a protest, sort of a symbol. You know, okay, I don't want anything even close to you contaminating me. Um, and he goes to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul says, I'm clean. You know, your blood be on your own hands. I've, I've done my job. I mean, you know, what about when we teach somebody and they reject it? Where did we go wrong? 
If we taught correctly, we didn't go wrong. Does Paul say, what did I do? What did I say? You know, what should I, what book should I have used? No. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I'm clean because I taught you. I, I, I fulfilled my job. When somebody rejects the gospel, it's not the fault of the guy who taught them the gospel. It's their own fault. We need to see it that way. You know, it's if, if we start thinking that we did wrong when we teach the gospel to somebody who rejects it, we'll either modify the gospel to get more people to accept it, or we'll quit teaching them. You know, think about this. What if you take two people? One of them teaches a hundred people and four converted. The other one teaches six people and three are converted. Which one did better? Well, absolutely. Partially because he got another one converted. Every soul's a soul. And worth everything. But you know he also did better because of the 94 who got to hear the gospel that didn't get to from the other guy. We don't see that as being something that is uh, a work for God, but it is preaching the gospel to those who won't listen and who end up blaspheming. That is also the work of God that he wants done, and God is glorified when his work is preached. So Paul doesn't feel guilty about this. He certainly feels like they've done the wrong thing, and he's not reluctant to say so. Anything you want to say through verse 6? Yeah, Shane. <laughs> you know, I think one thing that's been it's encouraging for me to see, and I guess I, I talk to, to guys that preach, and they get tight because people aren't converted, people don't see me listening or whatever. It's actually helped me in, just, in whatever I do, just the fact that the Lord is glorified by just doing the act, no matter what the results are. It's, it's the Lord that's glorified. And, and to be completely honest, if, if conversion is our main motivation, then we're not going to be very motivated to preach. But if glorification is our motivation, then we're going to preach with our heart. You know what? I believe it was Tommy Peeler several years ago I heard preached a sermon on the book of Acts. You know what he entitled it? The book of non-conversions. <laughs> wow! You don't think about it that way, but it was a really good sermon. Think about all the non-conversions in Acts. We always look at it from the standpoint of the book of conversions. But there were a ton of people who were not converted. Even some we know the names of. I mean, I don't remember who all he went through, but people like Felix and Agrippa and different ones. And uh, so, you know, Paul didn't do badly with that. He did the right thing. He left, went to this guy's house. His house was next to the synagogue, and he kept preaching. And one of these men, Crispus, was a guy who could think for himself. He was the leader of the synagogue, but he believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, in fact, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Crispus was able to examine the evidence and believe, despite the fact that the Jews as a whole rejected the gospel. And there were a lot of other people like him. You know, are we the kind of people that are willing to do what's right, even when the majority are against it. You know, that's what it's going to take. 
and uh, for the ruler of the synagogue to buck the synagogue and turn to the Lord, that is an impressive thing. And uh, he ends up being one of the ones that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1, that he had personally baptized, he had personally baptized many, and that's his point in 1 Corinthians 1, but he did, Christmas. Thoughts do eight. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, we're talking about this. I know a lot of times when I'm studying with people, you know, and it it's hard for me. It's I guess it's getting easier a little bit, but it, it's really hard for me to if someone's not believing, you know, it's like I start to think I gotta find some other approach, you know, or I gotta do something different. And I'm always thinking I'm I think that I'm doing something wrong, you know, when people aren't. I, I, you know, I don't know if they really don't understand or if they're just not wanting to, you know what I mean? And it's like, but, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong, you know? I mean, it's like, do you guys ever feel that way? Or it's like, I don't know, I, I, I need to learn how to, I don't know, do you have any advice? Like, I just... <laughs> well, the thing I think about is if that's the case, then Jesus was the greatest failure to walk face the planet. <laughs> I mean, Jesus didn't know his tactics about the case. He was, if we look at it in the human terms, as few as he converted, yeah, it's true. Don't try to do their job. Do your job. What's your job? So the seed. Yeah. The farmer sowed the seed in Mark four, and then he went to bed. Yeah. <laughs> he was not responsible for the for the growth of the seed, for the germination. You know, we're trying to do the wrong person's job. Now we need to teach it. Yeah. We need to teach it correctly. You know, in the way that the Lord says. It's not even bad for us to exhort people, persuade them, to accept them. But you see, the thing that is, if the secret to conversion was how well the teacher does, then that shifts the focus from the Lord to man. That's not... Is the thing that converts somebody, man, you had a really great teacher, and that really... No! It's the gospel. You know, we start thinking, well, who's the best teacher? Well, the best teacher is the one who teaches it the most. That's the best teacher. Who teaches it the most accurately. You know, we could say that. I mean, somebody who perverts it when they teach it, they're not a good teacher. But it's not like the secret is in who does the teaching. The secret's in the response of the person to the gospel. I think we struggle to really feel that. I don't think any of us would disagree with that theoretically. But I think in practice we struggle with it all the time. And so what do we do? I, I just, the other night, uh, a man who's an elder in a church talked to me about teaching some lessons on evangelism. And he said, and I appreciate this a lot, he said, you know, we're not looking for somebody to teach us sales things. You know, sales techniques. Wasn't that true? Do we need sales techniques? <laughs> We're not trying to make a sale. We're presenting the gospel of Christ. You know, it's not, well, if you'll do it this way, you know, if you'll say it like that, you know, if you'll, if you'll pop that question right at the right time, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not us popping the right question at the right time. You know, it's the word working on their heart. And some are the Lord's sheep and some aren't. A lot of times, we, I, that just hit me, a lot of times when I am reading, it says they'll, some of their hearts will be pricked or some, or some, or they receive the word gladly and were baptized and saved. And so, 
emphasis on them receiving it than wanting to receive it. And that, that's for some reason hard for me to, yeah, I just need to learn to deal with that. Yeah, move on just, just think of it differently. We all struggle with that, at least I do. But this is the truth. Yeah, I just feel bad for them, you know? And, you know. <laughs> yes, but even more, isn't it a shame <laughs> that people, even after they've heard the gospel, reject the Lord yeah. and His grace? That is kind of outrageous. Yeah. You think about all he's done. And people know it. And they just, well, I don't want this. So in a way, it's almost that we're more hurt for the Lord. No. They hurt themselves. They, yeah. They're getting what they deserve. But you hurt the Lord when you reject it. Yeah. Other thoughts? I mean, it would have to apply then to Christians, too. It's not the way the preacher admonishes or preaches or the way you talk to people individually, one-on-one. If it's, you know, if you're... I think we have a bigger problem with that. If somebody gets mad and runs off, well, you shouldn't have... You've done something wrong. You shouldn't have... You know, you, you apparently did done something wrong. Sure. There are some Bible principles about how we correct each other. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we ought to be kind to all, gentle, patient when wronged, apt to teach, etc. You know, obviously, there are some biblical traits that we need to have in terms of our attitude toward others. But it's not like there's some special charisma that we need I understand some people are more gifted at one thing than another. God uses the body parts how he wants to. Barnabas was a great encourager. You know, so thank God. But you don't read about his encouragement techniques. <laughs> you, know, you read about what he did. What he did were encouraging things as he sacrificed to serve others and to help them. So I think we need to get the focus more off of us and more on the Lord. Do things the way he says. Teach it the way he says. Have the attitudes he says. Absolutely. You know, everything he trains us to do, that's what we need to do. But he just doesn't train us in techniques and, you know, super special whiz-bang, you know, surefire methods to get everybody in, in, in the Lord. It just doesn't work that way. It's not like that. Cass? Um, I have a question. Um, maybe it's a weird question. But in verse 7, it says that just this one worship God whose house was next to the synagogue, why did he say that? His, do you think it's meant because he was next to the synagogue to go there more often? Or maybe it means it was a really convenient place for Paul to start teaching because it was right next door to the synagogue and some of the people who still wanted to listen, they didn't have to go anywhere very far different. That'd probably be a good spot to me. That's, that's my guess. Other thoughts through eight? I think he made this point in the John study, but like it's also not the gospel's fault when people don't listen. You're right. So, I don't know. That's kind of important. It's pretty much personal responsibility time when the gospel's preached. It's up to the hearer to respond. What What are you testing when you sow the seed? Well, not the potency of the seed, and certainly not the skill of the sower. You're testing the quality of the soil. That's what you're testing. I think uh, I'm surprised somewhat that Crispus is responsive to the gospel. I know. Here you you know you have a Jewish synagogue leader. I would think if anybody would would be resistant, it would have been him. But yet here we see that 
we shouldn't prejudge anyone as to whether or not they will, you know, be responsive. Amen. Very good. Well, uh, in verse 9, you know, you see the opposition in verse 6. And you can think about what's happened a lot of places where they've been opposition, they've run Paul out of town. But God speaks to Paul in a vision, says not to be afraid anymore. Just keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. So that's a very encouraging vision, a very comforting message. God's with him. You need to speak. You're not going to let him be harmed. So why is he keeping Paul in Corinth? What does he say? Teaching. Yeah? But what does the Lord say to him? I have many people in this city. Yeah. Now, what does he mean by that? I think, he's, I think he means that there's people whose hearts are running for each other. Absolutely. will be his. Yes. You might have looked at Corinth and say, well, we were lucky to get that handful. Better pull out now. It won't do any more good. The Lord knew. He said, I got much people in the city. There's a lot more people with good and honest hearts that need to be reached with the gospel. You just stay. I'll protect you. You just need to open your mouth and speak it. Do you ever wonder what the Lord's seeing when he looks? You know, when the Lord looks at, you know... Crawfordsville or Danville or Indianapolis or Madison or Seymour or wherever, you know, wonder if the Lord says, I, I've got I've got quite a few people in that city. We may be saying, I don't think anybody here will listen. You know, I just don't, I don't see any reason to preach here anymore. Nobody cares anymore. Maybe. But I don't think we would have the ability to assess that until we taught everybody. Now, if we teach everybody, I, you know, it's basically the way it was in Brazil. Paulo Marques moved to Florida Rica, and in 2000, Paulo's a man who just talks to everybody. Super low-key. He's not got any pizzazz. Just a real good man. But he just talks to everybody. He's friends with everybody. He's very friendly. Again, not charismatic personality. He's very friendly. He cares about everybody. And so he talks to everybody. And... He doesn't talk to Paolo very long before he's talking about the Lord, because that's just what he talks about, that's what he cares about. And so, this town of 2,000 sugar cane workers, when I'd visit him there, you know, especially near the end of the two years he was there, we'd walk up and down the road, and he'd tell me, so-and-so lives here, I, I studied, you know, with this one, I studied with that one, I studied here, I studied there. I mean, it was hard to find a house he hadn't been in. And, you know, there'd been about seven of them to go. <coughs> about four or five in the state place. And he said, I don't know what else to do. Tell everybody that would listen. You know, well, he did. What? Well, he needed to move on. You know? Now, that doesn't mean there's not work for those brethren. There have been some others to obey the gospel after he left because people change. You know, even a couple that were young when he was there who obeyed the gospel as they got older and things like that. People moved in. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the idea. You know, as, as if, if I'm in this area, well, as long as there's still people that haven't been taught, I've still got work to do. And the Lord may know that he's got some people among those untaught ones, whether we think he'd have people among them or not. Now, Paul had a little bit of advantage because the Lord's able to share that with him. But what's the mission he's given us? 
go and preach the gospel to every creature. That'll that'll decide that we don't need the Lord to uh, tell us how many he's got. We're not trying to conserve the seed. So he stays. You're in six months teaching the word of God among them. Comments and questions? Say. Do not think there's a point to be made in the fact that in the lowest of places, a lot of times it's where you're going to find people that will be ready to accept the Lord's word. I'd rather find, you know, personally, I'd rather find a person that is about as low down as you can get than I would someone's for hour so. That's a good opening for. I, I'm dying to use this illustration, even though I've used it with uh, quite a few of you. But there's some younger ones in here who surely haven't heard me do this. Uh, I love the uh, the illustration that comes from old time radio. I think from my dad about how many of you have heard me tell this or heard him about the uh, car that gets a flat tire in the middle of nowhere at night and there's a spare but there's no jack. Remember that story? Well, he's like, well, the guy's thinking, oh, man, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I haven't got a jack. You know, there's not, there's not going to be anywhere within mile. Anybody, you know, so he starts walking down the road. You know, it's hopeless. That, there's a light off in the distance. That's not a light of a house. It's probably just a street light or whatever. He gets a little closer to sure another's house. It's like, oh, he's not going to be anybody home. You know, he's going up there. Well, by the time he gets a little bit closer, he can see through the picture window there's somebody in there. He's like, you know, they wouldn't have a jack. Well, even if they did have a jack, they wouldn't let me borrow it. That time he knocks on the door, the person opens, he said, you just keep your old jack, and turns around and goes back. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we do? We have talked ourselves out of John Doe ever hearing the gospel, and by the time we get to him, we just say, you just be lost anyway, and we turn around and go, oh. isn't, that, isn't that the way we are? You know, we do so much of this. Well, they wouldn't want it. They wouldn't be interested. They wouldn't like it. They're, they're to this. They're to that. They're to something else. They're too immoral. They're too successful. They're too preoccupied. They're too smart. They're too dumb. They're too rich. They're too poor. Hey, do they have a soul? The Lord wants to, are they part of every creature? So I think that's a great illustration. Because that's exactly what I've done. There have been plenty of times, plenty of times, to this day, and it's like, oh, no use talking about that. <laughs> they wouldn't want it. You know, they wouldn't listen. Even if they did listen, they wouldn't accept. You know, you'd just be lost in it. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I was atheist when I started attending services. So, I just went because a friend invited me. So, no, but, you know. Yeah, look what there, yeah. No, <laughs> so, if an atheist can convert, I mean, you'd think, you know. I mean, because at least people who are, you know, getting drunk or doing things they shouldn't be doing, usually they believe that there's a God, you know what I mean? I didn't believe there was a God or Satan or nothing, so, I mean, at least those people usually already believe in God, so you're... Who knows who will respond? Yeah. I don't believe the Apostle Paul would have been on the top of my list, <laughs> you know? We just don't know. Makes me think, too, how God, by keeping Paul there sees that those who would be receptive are going to have the chance to hear the gospel. You know, a lot of times people say, well, what about people that live in the deepest, darkest part of this remote part of the world, and what about them, and they don't hear the gospel? Well, I, I can't, I can't from this passage say, oh, the, the gospel is, is clearly made available to everyone at any time, but it shows me that God is involved 
in getting the gospel to those who would be receptive. You sure see that all through the book of Acts. Yes. Yeah, he definitely is. And why wouldn't he be doing that today? Yeah. And it may be that he intends to be doing that through you. Uh-huh. Right. You know, if we're so concerned about this guy in, you know, whatever, yeah. go teach him. So, I think a lot of times when you say, oh, they wouldn't want this, it's oftentimes just a, it's just justification for not preaching. You know, right, absolutely. It's not because they don't want it. It's because you don't like doing it. We don't know if they want it or not if they haven't heard it. And also, if you think about it, <laughs> why wouldn't they want it? And we're almost undermining the gospel when we say that. Why wouldn't they want it? What is there about it not to want? You know, if you think about it, the fact that they're dumb or smart or whatever it means, means they need the gospel even more. Um, so a lot of times when we do, we're just undervaluing the gospel. That's a good point. Excellent point. Anything else through verse 11? Is, uh, do we detect that there's some sort of uh, concern on Paul's part here that, that the Lord appears to him in a vision and says, you know, don't be afraid. You know, I suspect so. Yeah, yeah, that's what which, I would say. I think see, it helps me see that Paul was was really human. <laughs> he wasn't superhuman like we a lot of times make him out to be. He too had fears and you know, so <laughs> if you'd gone through as many things as he had mm-hmm. in nearly every city he was ever at, it would sort of give you a dose of paranoia, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. Uh, yeah, it would be almost impossible to imagine he wouldn't be afraid in this circumstance. Wonder if, are they going to stone him here? Or is he going to be beating with rods? Or is he going to be thrown in prison? You know, it's kind of like, pick your punishment. This would be a kind of worried that, you know, last time Christ appeared to me, I was doing something wrong. So what am I doing wrong now? Last time he told me I was persecuting you, so I won't be, a, I won't be scared that I was doing something else that you want me to do. Could be. I have about 12 to 17. He settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and of and your own law, Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Well, Gallio is the governor, basically. Now, you know, what you call the governor depends on whether or not it's an imperial province or a senatorial province. I can't remember which is which at the moment, but Luke always gets that one right, uh, as he does with all the historical details, and uh, most of them we can confirm. Uh, so Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. This really gives us a good date right here, a solid date. Gallio was in office from July of 51 to June of 52. In fact, I've got it here, right here now. Now that I look at it, um, this province, the province of Achaia, had been a senatorial province, had changed to become a senatorial province in, in the year 44. And so proconsul was the right term. You know, 
Tacitus tells us that under Tiberius it went to being an imperial province. And Suetonius tells us that under Claudius it went back to being a senatorial province. If only the passage of Tacitus were available, and we didn't have the one of Suetonius, we might have thought Luke was mistaken. <laughs> but the fact is, he got it exactly right. Yes, it had switched to being an imperial province, but in 44 it switched back to senatorial, which means you called the governor a proconsul. And uh, Gallio, I don't know if any of you have heard of this guy, I don't know how much you know about Roman people, but uh, have you heard of Seneca? Have you heard of Seneca? Gallio was Seneca's brother. Uh, but they bring Paul, the Jews do, before the judgment seat to try to get Gallio to pass sentence against him. And they say this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And Gallio doesn't even let Paul make a defense. What does Gallio say? Don't waste my time with your Jewish questions and all. Yeah, it doesn't matter right and wrong. It's a matter of your own rules and regulations, you know, questions about words and names in your own law. <laughs> I'm not even going to judge this. This has nothing to do with the Roman court system. In so doing, he basically gives his endorsement to, to it being legal for them to preach the gospel. He's not, he does not think this is something that the courts have any business dealing with. And he drives them away from the synagogue. He, he, uh, he does not think that secular authorities ought to be judging this matter. And so you can see how the vision was right. <clears throat> no man will attack you in order to harm you. He was attacked, but he wasn't harmed which is very encouraging. God fulfills exactly what he said. They take Sosthenes and beat him. Um, I really don't know how to interpret that, but Gallio didn't care. <laughs> He's sort of, oh well, let him fight it out. Comments and questions? <clears throat> well, they beat him because they were upset that he couldn't convince Gallio to execute Paul and something like that. Could be. Why would the Greeks be upset about that though? Mm, the Greeks? It says then all the Greeks took Sophonies and moved the synagogue and beat him. What, you, what translation are you using? The King James. Oh. Oh. We recognize a textual question about that. Anybody got the, uh, who's got something besides the New York Standard from the New York Standard? What's the New York Standard though? They. Yeah. 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 My my footnote says different is in you or other translations say that they all. You know, there's several possibilities. We really don't understand this. You know, is this Gentiles who are just mad at the Jews for bringing this up, and they take advantage of them to beat Sosthenes? Is it the fellow Jews? who beat him up for mishandling the case and perhaps they think he's a Christian sympathizer. You know, or something like that. Whatever it is, they took Paul to Gallio hoping to have him disciplined, and it's their own leader that gets beat up, whether by them or by other people. But I just not sure. And there's a Sosthenes, to add, you know, complications, there's a Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1.1 1, 1 that's a Christian. So, I don't know what that means. I don't know if this could be the same guy and he converted later, or not the same guy. Just a lot of unanswered questions for me about this, and I just really don't know the answer. So this is also the knees. This is the one speaking in verse 13. Is 
that why they beat him up? Because he wasn't able to persuade. This is the Jews saying this. The Jewish leaders. That's their accusation. Where did Sosthenes come from? I'm confused. Number where, 17. 17. I know, but where did he come Is this the first time it talked about him? Yeah. yeah. Chris, a random guy and see, Christmas, like Christmas was the synagogue leader before, back yeah, in exactly. verse 8, and he converted, so I'm yeah. guessing they kicked him out. Yeah. So, oh, okay, so now maybe the Sosthenes took his place? Probably. Because it says the ruler of the synagogue? Oh, okay, that makes sense. But I'm like, what? Yeah, that's okay, that's the leader of the synagogue. Right. He's like, he looks the weakest of the... <laughs> I mean, I don't know. The first, obviously, I don't know what the day is. I didn't know that it translated day. But my first thought was maybe that it was the people, maybe uh, Gallio had him beaten because he was bringing these things up that weren't worth his time. That was my first thought. I don't know. Yeah, it didn't look like that. It looked like Gallio just kind of uh, neutral. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, you've seen parents who are just like, oh, let, let the kids fight it out, you know, <laughs> whatever. He's Switzerland. Do what? He's Switzerland. Yeah, he's Switzerland, okay. <laughs> That's on the tape, and anybody hears that in a few years, they may not have a clue what that means. Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the younger generation doesn't have a clue what that means. I hardly know. People have told me. Know do, you, do you guys know what it may, he meant when he says that Switzerland? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Switzerland is, uh, you know, has been well known in the past for being neutral in wars. It's a stretch, but. All right, 18 to 22. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Cantria, uh, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Okay. So Paul go, comes to uh, Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. When he was near Corinth and sent Cree, what had he done? Cut his hair. Cut his hair because he took a vow. What is that all about? Lost a bet? <laughs> uh, that's not what happened to me. <laughs> the lawnmower, a, a little early. Uh, yeah, what's, what's the idea of cutting your hair because you take a vow? Anybody know? Do you know, Kevin? Didn't the Nazarenes um, shave their hair to show their obedience to God? Alright, you're on the right track. The Nazarites. And they were commanded during the time of the vow not to cut their hair. So typically they cut it before the vow began. And uh, then also they cut it after it was over and they take the hair 
and sacrifice in the temple or presented with the sacrifice or whatever. That, those things, I think, are more Jewish custom than what the law said. Uh, but, but during the time period of the vow, they couldn't cut their hair, couldn't have contact with dead bodies, and couldn't have any contact with the product of the grape. Do you remember some Nazarite... Normally it was a, like a limited time vow. Do you remember any lifetime Nazarites in the Bible? Or theoretically supposed to be lifetime Nazarites? Samson. Samson. And maybe Samuel. And maybe John the Baptist. Both of those uh, have a pretty good possibility, but Samson clearly was. So I think Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. Either he cut his hair right before the vow began, uh, perhaps that's the uh, best explanation here, or possibly at the end. Yes, right. How could it have been the Nazarite vow if he couldn't take the Lord's Supper? The grape juice. Well, I don't have a good answer to that. Still think it was the Nazarite vow, though. <laughs> but well, wait, he brings up a really good point. Yeah, that is a good point. Problem. Yeah. It was a short vow. <laughs> Six days. <laughs> That's true. What kind of vow doesn't last a lifetime? Oh, typically, the Nazarite vow was like a period of special dedication. So you'd like, you know, for a month or I don't know how long they typically were. What was it? What? You'd be especially dedicated. What uh, what were the what did the vows consist of? Like what kind of? It doesn't say. It's just more oh. of a dedication. Number six. That's a really good question, right? I don't have a good answer. At any rate, um, he wants to move on, so he doesn't stay. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind, uh, and he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back, and he goes on to Caesarea, and then to Jerusalem, and then comes to Antioch, where he'll start the next journey. So, um, you know, I want to say, I mean, I do think this is a Nazarite vow, even though I don't have an answer to that question. You see Paul doing some things sometimes like that, that are a little troubling. He does it in chapter 21. He, uh, purifies himself, pays the expense of some people under a vow, and evidently takes the vow with them. Now, this was a seven-day vow. So, I mean, maybe that's you know, explanation. It's possible it was a, you know, Sunday-to-Sunday vow. Uh, I don't think that's, I mean, that could be. Uh, but, but whatever. Why does Paul do those things? I mean, you know, you just really wouldn't expect him to take some sort of a Jewish vow, perhaps, we wouldn't expect him to make sacrifice in the temple. We wouldn't expect him to, you know, do these kind of Jewishly oriented things now that he's a Christian. What do you think about it? Is it to be all things to all men? I suspect it was, but that might cause us some problems as well. I mean, just how far do you take that? Yeah. I want to go get a tattoo to convert someone with a tattoo. Well, that would probably be okay if you did. It might not be real bright, since it would be a little permanent. But uh, what about, uh, you know, I don't know, worshiping an idol with somebody so you can convert the idolater? Would you do that? No, I think not. What about you know, going to the bar and drinking, you know, 
with somebody so you can convert. It's like, well, we would realize that we ought to try to narrow the distance between us and other people, but not to do something wrong. So that's kind of the problem with this. Was it okay for Paul to do these Jewish things now that he's a Christian? Could it be that he was doing it to, uh, like, as you're saying, get closer and to glorify God, but not as a rule or a law or something? I think you're on the right track. Think about what you know about the whole Jewish Old Testament system. You know, this is a really unusual thing, what God did with Israel. Because, you know, the law of Moses was a religious law, but it was also the national law of the Jews. And so a lot of the provisions of the law were like the civil code for the Jews. You know, as a Jew, you do these things not not necessarily just as a worshiper of God, but as a part of your culture and tradition and customs. And that was what God intended. God gave them a civil law in all that he gave them on Mount Sinai as well as a a religious law. So I suspect that's the answer, that he was becoming a Jew to the Jews in terms of identifying with their culture and customs, not that he thought that you had to take this vow or purify yourself or whatever in order to uh, be right with God. In verse 21, I don't know how New American Standard reads, but uh, New King James says, God willing. And that's the first time, I think that's the first time, I mean, I know the verse over in James 4.15 that, you know, says, we should say if the Lord wills. But I think it's the first time I've ever read God willing, like in another thing. Does it, do people talk like that a lot throughout the New Testament? I mean, this is the first time I can ever remember reading this. I mean, like, in an actual conversation, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, was it common for them to say that? I mean, like, like uh, yeah, I think he does find that. Ten. <laughs> you got First Corinthians sixteen seven. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, but I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Four nineteen and Romans fifteen thirty two. Uh, yeah, it's actually right. Romans 1.10. Uh, make your request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Huh. There's quite a few. I was curious. Yeah, I've never even noticed those. Uh, Start looking for those. There's several. <laughs> I've got the list of the whole bunch. Have you got all of them? Romans 1, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 16, Hebrews 6, James 4, and 1 Corinthians 3. There may even be some more with slightly different words. Huh. I think there are. Okay. So, yeah. That's really common. <laughs> Paul lives with a sense of dependence on the Lord's will. Right. I mean, you know, it just kind of stinks to say some outrageous statement like, I will do this, as if it really depends on you. Yeah. It doesn't. That's why they can't promise things. How do you know you will? Maybe you won't. <laughs> comments or questions through verse 22. Were these vows, I mean, were these public or private things? Is it even unusual that they would 
we've even mentioned, of course, cutting of your hair or not cutting it would be noticeable, but... I don't know. I mean, I don't think this was like a congregational thing, but I don't know that it was necessarily kept a secret. But it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that Paul would do something like that personally for his own benefit you know, and not make it known to everybody or, you know, even if it was a Jewish tradition, something to dedicate. Well, if they don't know about it, then it's probably not going to help him identify it. But if it's sort of like fasting, you're not to do that publicly. If that were the case, it was you're doing it for your own spiritual right. benefit. Right. So then it wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that Paul would do some things that were Jewish traditions in order for his own relationship with God. Yeah, that's possible. You know, here it seems like it's more of, I mean, at least it's told us here publicly. Right. And so probably isn't for his own spiritual benefit as much as it was. To. But in the same way, fasting, you, you don't eat. I mean, if people were watching, they would notice that. You know, if they, you know what I'm saying? Whereas the vow of cutting your hair, that would be the other thing with the cutting of hair makes me think that it's obviously longer than a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I've been known to go more than a week without cutting mine, so... <laughs> wow, that's true. Either one of them? Either one. <laughs> I did want to ask why he dropped off his hair at Ephesus. <laughs> oh, no. He says he cut his hair and then they went to Ephesus and he left him there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so Paul and I had the same problem because it was it, it, he said he left them. <laughs> you very, they left both of them though. <laughs> it wasn't very many. <laughs> you don't know. You're hoping to identify them. Well, how about twenty-three to twenty-eight? time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So, Paul really is concerned to nurture and strengthen the brethren that he's taught before. He leaves from Antioch, and he passes through the Galatian and Phrygian region, strengthening all the disciples. Paul is passionate about getting gospel spread in new territories, but he does not neglect the follow-up work with the brethren that have already been converted. You know, he feels like that's an important thing to do. Brethren need to be strengthened. You don't just convert people and leave them. And so Paul, every time he has an opportunity, goes back through and revisits and strengthens the disciples. Um, 
Paul is having an ever-growing list of churches he cares about, list of brethren that he's praying for. You know, it's just amazing. And Paul's got a lot on him. Can you imagine how many different brethren in these places, you know, he's trying to help and encourage and, and strengthen. And so really, um, you know, there's a number of miles of travel that are compressed in these verses. You know, many, many hundred miles. You know, maybe over a thousand. Uh, as he goes, you know, from Antioch to Galatia, Phrygia, and on down to Ephesus. Uh, when he gets, well, meanwhile, back in Ephesus, this is really kind of like what's been happening while Paul's been doing this. One of the few parts, one of the few, one of the few paragraphs in this part of the book of Acts that Paul's not mentioned. You know, you don't have much of that here. But here it's Aquila and Priscilla who have found whom? Yeah. In fact, I have only paragraph from chapter 16 on in which Paul is not involved or even mentioned. They find Apollos. What do you know about Apollos? Yeah, he's a good speaker. Where is he from? Alexandria. Alexandria was in what country, what province, what territory? Egypt. Egypt. Big Jewish cultural center. Big educational center. Very uh, sophisticated philosophical city. He's an eloquent man from Alexandria. Alexandria. He's mighty in the scriptures. And what's he preaching? Yeah, he's preaching accurately, but he only knows about the baptism of John. And uh, Philip or uh, Luke, who's, who's the author of this, values accurate instruction. You can look back at Luke chapter one, verses three and four. And he was concerned to be accurate in what he stated at Theophilus. And so here he's, he's observing Apollos is teaching accurately as far as it goes. But he doesn't know the rest of the story. So Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos and update his knowledge and now he's able to speak and teach accurately, more accurately, because he knows the rest of the story. He knows about Jesus and about all that has happened. It's amazing that uh, an eloquent, educated a scripturally mighty man like Apollos would learn from a couple of tent makers. It says something about him that he's willing to listen to them. We're not too good to learn from anybody. You know, and it's amazing that he was willing to change like this. Once he learns, then he he modifies this. Um, They did do one thing that probably was a a very, um, I don't know, thoughtful, compassionate, wise thing. What did they do as they taught at Apollos? Took him aside. Took him aside. Why was that better? But they're not correcting him in front of everybody else. Absolutely. It is so much easier to listen to correction mm-hmm. and to receive it. You know, if we're not being fronted out in front of everybody else. You know, how do you want to be correct? You want somebody to to single you out in front of everybody and tell you, hey, you shouldn't be teaching that. Now, there are times that that has to be done. You know, Paul had to withstand Peter to his face in front of everybody because Peter had, you know, done something that needed to be corrected in front of everybody. There are times that that needs to be done. But when it's possible to do it privately, it's really helpful. You know, this is kind of a wild aside. I don't. I think this is a helpful principle. 
And, you know, I'm thinking about when you have children, I think it's very helpful to take this approach in correcting and discipline our children. You know, it's amazing to me what parents do and say. You know, you take parents of a, you know, I don't know, a four-year-old. And the four-year-old's listening to them. They're saying, you know, little Johnny's really bad. Little Johnny does this. Little Johnny does that. And all that right in front of him. You know, well, he's just little Johnny. He doesn't care. Hey, four-year-olds know what's going on. They care. Well, what about when a parent will just, you know, right in front of everybody, just yell at the kid and bawl him out? Or, or even spank him? I believe in spanking children. But, you know, and I believe in spanking them at the time. I'm not necessarily big on this idea, well, when you get home, you're going to get it. Especially for a small child, they may have forgotten it by then. Um, but, but, you know, take him to the bathroom. Take him outside. You know, do something that's more discreet. You know, I think just understanding that, you know, they may be young, but it doesn't mean they don't have feelings. And it doesn't mean that you have the right to be insensitive about them and shame them publicly. And certainly when we're trying to correct each other. You know, let's be, let's treat others like we want to be treated. Isn't that a Bible principle? Mm-hmm. Comments and questions on this? Uh, through 26. So you think in 26, you think it wasn't that Apollos, like Apollos wasn't saying anything false. He yeah. was just, because just looking James says more accurately, so I took that to mean that maybe he kind of goofed up some things. So they or maybe it's just you taught the rest of the story. That's more accurate when you can give the rest of it. Oh, I think of it in essence. Okay. Complete? Yeah, yeah complete. complete. Yeah. Okay, I think And then he wants to go to Achaia, and so they wrote to the disciples there to welcome him, and he helped them a lot and refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Achaia. I wonder where he wanted to go to in Achaia. Corinth? Corinth. That's where Aquila and Priscilla had been. That's one of the churches we know that's in Achaia. Now, we don't have to guess about that. Uh, we've got a little extra information. 19.1 says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth. So, uh, you know, if we, if we were doubtful about that, we know. Uh, but, but he went to Corinth, and he helped those brethren. And, and was he used his eloquence and his ability to refute the Jews publicly, to teach the truth about Jesus. He was willing to stand up for the Lord and was a really good influence on the brethren there in court. Comments or questions about that? So had he not heard about the resurrection? I assume he had not. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm assuming. Sounds like there were other Christians there. Uh, well... The brethren encouraged him. Yeah, but I'm assuming these are ones that Priscilla and Aquila has been teaching or that Paul was there, you know, just briefly. I mean, Paul, when he came in verse 19, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and they wanted to stay longer, but he leaves. But I'm assuming that Aquila and Priscilla have taught some people... I don't know when in all of this Apollos was converted. Or was he, he learned the rest of the story. So, you know, it may be that he learned it pretty early on before there were a whole lot of other Christians. 
I also don't know how many brethren there were that, you know, wrote the disciples in verse 27. I mean, that may have been mostly Aquila and Priscilla. They were the ones that knew the brethren in Corinth. Well, it was at Ephesus, and they had just been to Ephesus. and They're in Ephesus. Paul had just been to Ephesus, and right, Paul esteemed Ephesus, Ephesus. So he comes into town teaching, and Priscilla and Aquila hear him. Right, right. But it, it appears there were some back in 1920. Perhaps. I'm not sure if that's just a request to keep teaching or if they've been converted. I don't know. Okay. You know, and I don't know when, you know, after he came into town, Aquila and Priscilla met him uh, or started teaching. A lot of unanswered questions. But there doesn't seem to be any implied criticism of Apollos, like, rejecting the truth for a while and then Aquila and Priscilla getting to accept it. Apparently, apparently he just didn't know. You know, he was acquainted only with the baptism of John, it says yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if you'll have an answer to this, but... Uh, Probably not, if you started that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've learned to say that before I ask questions. Um, Why? Because he, he never answers my questions. <laughs> uh, I answer some people's. And it's not mine. Um, but I've heard people use passages like First Timothy 4, or the passage First Timothy talking about women being silent and First Corinthians 11 and things like that to say, well, why was the wife also teaching Apollos? Uh, what do you say about those things? Well, what I say about it is that God does not tell women not to teach the Bible. Well, the restriction placed upon women is not to teach in a way as to have authority over a man in First Timothy 2. Now, women do teach men like when they sing. They teach and admonish. And a woman, together with her husband, was able to teach Apollos. She didn't take authority over him. You know, a woman can make a good comment in a Bible class and teach, but not in a role of authority over a man. So that's the restriction. So you're saying the fact that she was teaching Apollos didn't put her in authority over Apollos? No. For one thing, she had her husband with her. I don't, I'm assuming that Aquila would have taken whatever leadership authority there would have been. I agree. I'm not saying I agree. I, I think that does clarify that women can teach. I agree. They just can't teach in a way that exercises authority over men. Yes. I mean, you know, that's why I got really upset one time about the fact that in services we ask if there's any announcements that a woman asks if we could pray for whatever. And they got really upset because they said that was taking it for the man or whatever. Different issue. Yeah. First Corinthians 14 says for a woman not to speak in the church assemblies. Yes. yes. So she shouldn't have said that. Yes. So I, I'm, I guess in some situations it's hard for me to think about what is and what isn't. That's why I yeah, this is certainly outside the church assembly when they took him aside privately. Yeah. privately. So 1 Corinthians 14 wouldn't yes, apply. I and I think 1 Timothy 2 does not because she didn't have authority over him. Good question. I answered that one. Literally one of the first ever. <laughs> Ask a Bible question, get, a, get an answer. Hey, hey, I've had a Bible question before. This is the same Apollos they talked about in First Corinthians, like chapter three. And stuff yes, like and of course that shows you that he had contact right. with the brother in court. Okay. When it says, I don't know, you know, I never know what Emory Sanders says always, but and verse twenty-four it says an eloquent man. Yeah. Though it says, and yeah. What does that mean? Good speaker. 
Oh, he's, oh, he's like Obama. Well, he makes you. He makes you think. He has a silk tongue. But anyway, uh, and then uh, and then he tricks you into thinking he's a good man. Uh, verse twenty-eight. Uh, not to offend anyone, if you like. Verse 28, the King James says vigorously, what is that? Ryan called a Paul so liar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. Uh, my translation <laughs> says read powerfully. Sorry, I might take my little people. All right, any other extraneous uh, remarks? He says he successfully passed through the region. I wonder what that's referring to. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, with as many dangers as he'd fallen in. Maybe that was it. He got through with successively. Yeah. That's right. It is successful. I thought it was successful. I can explain it Wait, where is he looking? That's what I thought it said. Then I looked at it again. It's like, oh, it does say successively. Yeah. Never mind. I can explain what's not there. I can explain what is there. You won't answer my Bible question. Thank you for that. Uh, the other things we ought not to talk about. Good answer. <laughs> All right. Well, we will stop here on the uh, you know, high note. About five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Let's stop quickly. <laughs> Never stop quite quick enough around here. <laughs> Never know when to quit. <laughs> 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 <laughs>